So have your Bibles open to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. I'm going to share a message with you called Love is the Answer. 1 John chapter 4, we'll begin in verse 7. We'll read through verse 12 in just a few moments. How many of you, I wonder, use Google, the search engine, to search for answers to questions that you have or just for information? How many of you, just raise your hand, show hands, just about everybody in the room huh? does that. Did you know that Google processes, processes over 99,000 searches, just like yours and mine, every single second? Every single second. Eight and a half billion searches a day, over two trillion searches every year. We live in an age where all the information that we could possibly hope to, to want to learn, all the random facts, all the opinions we could ever hope to want to understand or be interested in, much less ever hope to understand and process, are literally at our fingertips. The average search lasts less than a tenth of a second. So how about some random facts about Christmas from Google? Christmas purchases account for one-fifth of all the retail sales annually. The average American spent $826 a person for Christmas last year. And not for each person they bought presents for, but each person spent that much. That's a lot, right? Do you know that a lot of Japanese folks traditionally eat KFC, Kentucky Fried Chicken, at Christmas time, there was a successful marketing campaign in 1974, almost 50 years ago. It's so popular this time of year that you have to put in your order up to two months ahead of time. Greenland and Norway have some unusual Christmas recipes. They have a dish called matak. It's raw whale skin with the blubber still on it. Supposedly tastes like hazelnuts. And then another one called Kiviak is prepared by stuffing up to 500 dead auk birds, feathers, beaks, and all, inside of a seal skin and leaving it to ferment for seven months. Sounds really good, doesn't it? I think we'll try that next year. Paul McCartney earns nearly a half million dollars a year from what critics say is his worst song ever. It's made over $15 million to date. Simply... Sing it with me. Simply having a wonderful Christmas time. You know that song. Germans hide a pickle in the tree on Christmas Eve, and the first child to discover it on Christmas morning gets a special gift that no one else receives. Lots of random facts out there, right? Let's read what God's Word has to say. Would you please stand in honor of that? Beginning in verse 7 of chapter 4. Beloved, let us love one another... For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Heavenly Father, uh, 
We're thankful for your word today. We pray that you would speak to us through this message. Father, we want to be loving individuals and we want to be a loving body. We need your Holy Spirit to help us do that. Teach us today what it means to love you and love one another. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. So much of life is about searching for answers, whether you use Google or whatever. Answers in all kinds of areas of our lives. Answers to some of the most difficult questions that we face in life. And unfortunately, or maybe quite fortunately, not even Google can help us with most of those difficult questions. For, for you young folks, you want to know the answers to questions like, what am I going to do when I get out of high school? Some of you might be saying, am I ever going to get out of high school? I don't know, but... Let me just say this about that real quick. Don't rush that. You're going to spend a great deal of time over the course of your life rehashing those years and wondering what would have happened if you'd have done this or done that. So don't rush that. But then questions like, do I go to college? What career path should I take? What will my life be like after I clear those hurdles? Will I be successful? Will I be happy? Will I marry? Will we have children? For parents with children, you want to know, are my children going to be okay? What will their lives be like? Can I always be there for them? Will they even allow me to always be there for them? And for those of us who have grandchildren and perhaps some great-grandchildren, we ask things like, how can we most effectively spoil our grandchildren without angering their parents? On a more serious note, what will our retirement years be like? Will my physical and mental health hold up? Will I have enough money to make ends meet? As the years go by, how can I best care and provide for my children, my great-grandchildren, or my great or my grandchildren? Or for many of us, how can I best care for my parents? The answers to, to these and other important questions are not always obvious. They're not always so easy uh, to come by. Or are they what we'd like them to be if we do find answers? Circumstances change. Life throws us a curve, and we're forced to adjust. We're forced to, to alter our expectations. The way we thought life would turn out for us doesn't turn out like that at all. What we thought would turn out for our children is not the way it turns out for our children. It's not always a bad thing. Sometimes what we thought was the worst thing that could happen turns out to be a good thing. But you know, Despite how many answers we find to life's difficult questions, there are some fundamentals which, if not in place, will render all the answers we can find to those questions moot. By their very presence in our lives, these fundamentals provide fulfillment and peace and joy. And arguably, the most important of these fundamentals is the emphasis of this fourth Sunday of Advent. We just lit the candle a few moments ago, and that is love. Without love... Loving others and being loved, there is little to live for in this life. Without love, life can be a desperate, empty existence. So what does the Bible have to say about love? There are over 350 verses, so lots, right? Many of them are your favorite verses in Scripture. James tells us if you really keep the royal law found in Scripture... You're doing right. Love, excuse me, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. John writes in 1 John 3, 11, this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Paul writes in Romans 13, 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other, 
For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Peter in 1 Peter 1.22 says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And of course, Jesus says it best, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. You think God's trying to tell us something important here? These verses and many more, 350 total. The commandment of the kingdom, the royal law, the proclamation of the King of kings and the Lord of lords is love one another. Now, now why would God make it such a priority, you think, for us to love one another? I mean, why, why repeat it so often? Why not just make your point and, and then move on? Because he knows that you and I don't just naturally do that. We don't just naturally love one another. He knows that you and I don't really know how to love one another. Or if we do, we often make the choice not to. And here in our text, through his servant John, God speaks to us about the priority of love. And I know we've heard this message before. You've heard other messages on love. But it's almost like we forget. I believe it was Seneca who said, a thing is not too oft repeated that is yet to be learned, right? Or, or even if we do, we, we believe we can, we understand it, we know it, we, we, we think we know how to love, but we disobey His commands so often without regard for the repercussions of our disobedience when it comes to loving others. And even if we do get the message, I mean, we understand where to love others, we often rationalize the extent and the quality of our love by saying something like, Oh, I, well, Pastor, I do love that person. I just don't like them very much. Well, you don't know what they did. Pastor, you don't know what they said. You don't know how they acted. You don't know what I heard. You name it. Or you'd understand how hard it is for me to love them. But the bottom line is this, beloved. There is no justification. There is no excuse. There is no rationalization. We are simply disobeying God if we fail to love. If we fail to love, we're not doing what he repeatedly tells us, commands us to do. We're like the little girl who spent the whole day fighting with her younger sister. And that evening as they prepared for bed, they were still going at it, furious with one another. But their mother, as always, had them kneel beside their bed to say their evening prayers. The eight-year-old began, Dear God, bless Daddy and Mommy, our cat and our dog. She stopped there, and her mother gently prodded her and said, well, didn't you forget somebody? She glared across the bed at her six-year-old sister and added, and oh, yes, God, bless my ex-sister. <laughs> but it's like that when we disregard God's command for us to love one another. We treat our brothers and sisters in Christ as if they are not our brothers and sisters in Christ. As we look at this text, I want us to be confronted with and deal with the quality and extent of our love, both our love for God and our love for one another. In that process, we're going to examine this text. We're going to see if we can define love, as undefinable as it is. We're going to reflect on God's supreme demonstration of love, and then we're going to 
finally learn what's at stake. In other words, we're going to learn how important it is that we actually do obey His command to love one another. First of all, love is defined by God's Word. Let's read verses 4, uh, 7 through 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. So how do we define love? I mean, it's a simple word, just four letters. And we all know what love is, even if we can't define it with, in so many words. I mean, if there was ever a single subject that, that was the most thought about, most written about, most talked about, most sung about in all of history, it would have to be love, wouldn't it? I mean, books and poetry, movie after movie with storylines around love and romance and songs being sung about the yearning for love or blossoming love or unrequited love. Back in the 1960s, folks used to talk about free love, which it turns out, after all, was not quite so free. It costs many not only their purity, but their self People have always and still experiment with extramarital love affairs only to find out they aren't nearly what they'd imagined. So then what is love really? Well, the Bible defines love, and what we discover in our text reveals is what we find is that love is in inextricably, inseparably linked to God. We read in our text very clearly, love is from God, that in fact God is love. So what does the Bible mean when it says that love comes from God? It simply means that God is the starting place, the source of real love. Genuine love is rooted in the very character of our Father Himself. There's no such thing as real love without God being the source of it. Love has its origins in God. And when we read that God is love, we're meant to understand something very important about the nature of God. Jesus is, excuse me, John is telling us here that love is the fundamental, it is the core characteristic, it is the heartbeat of God. God is love. Say God is love. Everything about God, every activity, every manifestation of God has its root in love love C.S. Lewis wrote though our feelings come and go God's love for us does not our love is fickle God's love is not and that means that love also defines those who belong to God there are verses here that provide us with this test for establishing who's been born of God and who knows God because God is love those who claim to know God are commanded to live lives characterized by love. That slide got a kilter there, but let's repeat that. Those of us who claim to know God are commanded to live lives characterized by love. R.C. Sproul wrote, All virtue that is saving or distinguishing of true Christians is summed up in Christian love. It is love that disposes us to honor God as God, to adore and worship Him, Love recognizes God's right to govern us and His worthiness to be the object of our obedience. At the same time, love disposes us to treat our neighbors with honor and respect. So, okay, God is love. We got that. And as His children, we're commanded to love. We don't have any choice. But how do we know? I mean, how do we really know that God is love? I mean, the skeptic, the, the doubter, would declare there's one thing for preacher to stand up and say that God is love 
It's another thing to actually see it. And I get that. We don't, we don't want to simply hear about how someone loves us. We want to see that love in action. So we see that love has been demonstrated by the Father. Let's look at verses 9 and 10. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. So to see love demonstrated, we don't need to look any further than Christ, right? He's the ultimate. He's the perfect. He's the consummate demonstration of God's love. He is the ultimate personification of God's love. Listen again to to John's words in our text. This is how God showed His love among us. He sent His one and only Son into the world that we might live through Him. Then we have the most famous verse in all of Scripture, perhaps. Many of you, it's your favorite verse. Jesus' explanation of why God sent Him to earth, John 3, 16, For God so loved the world, right, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The entire reason for Christmas is the love of God, the incarnation of Christ. God unquestionably demonstrated to all the world what genuine love looks like in the coming of Christ on that first Christmas. And we see the magnitude of His love and His compassion for us there. God sent His Son because He loves us. Because God is love. God sent His Son for us because He he sees our need for love. And He reached out to do something about meeting that need. It's, It's impossible for us to even begin to grasp what that cost our Father, what that cost our Savior. One writer put it like this, Jesus leaving heaven is like a painter becoming a brushstroke on his own painting or a playwright becoming a character in his own play. For some people, it is easier to imagine putting all the oceans in a teacup or trapping the atmosphere in a bottle than it is to understand that God would take on human form and walk this planet. God loves us so much that He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, away from the glories of heaven. Christ left the glories of heaven to come and live among us. Christ humbled Himself by being made in the form of of human. God, God gave Himself daily for us as He walked those dusty roads of Palestine, ministering to people. And finally, Christ offered Himself, himself up for us willingly by dying on the cross of Calvary. He endured the shame and the humiliation of the cross. He suffered its terrible pain. He, he paid the debt that we owe for our sins, made forgiveness and reconciliation and eternal life possible. The, the wonderful truth of the gospel message this Christmas is that Christians are saved from God's wrath and reconciled to God, not because we loved God, but because He loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now, that word propitiation can throw us off a little bit. It sounds like a a theological term that fell straight out of the ivory tower of academia. But listen, beloved, I want you to know propitiation is a beautiful, beautiful word. It carries with it the, the basic idea of appeasement or satisfaction towards God. It's really a two part act that involves the appeasing of the wrath of the offended person, in this case God, and being reconciled to Him, in this case us. 
The Bible teaches us that, that God himself has, has, has provided the, the only means through which his wrath can be appeased and sinful man can be reconciled to him. And the reason for this is that man is totally incapable of satisfying the wrath of God, the justice of God, except by spending an eternity in hell. There's no service, there's no sacrifice, there's no gift that man can offer that will appease the holy wrath of God, that will satisfy his perfect justice. The only satisfaction, the only appeasement, the only propitiation that could be acceptable to God, that can reconcile God, man to him, had to be made by him. For that reason, God the Son, Jesus Christ, came into this world in human flesh to be the perfect sacrifice and to make atonement or propitiation for the sins of His people. Beloved, all we deserve is wrath and punishment, death and hell. That's all we deserve. But God, in His infinite grace, infinite mercy, provided a way for His wrath to be appeased, that we might be reconciled to him. And that way is to the sacrificial death of his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross in atonement for our sins. It's through faith in Jesus Christ as God's perfect sacrifice foretold in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New that we can be reconciled to God. It is only because of Christ's perfect life, his death on the cross, and his resurrection on the third day that a lost sinner deserving of hell can be reconciled the holy God. The only way for God's wrath against sinful man to be appeased and for us to be reconciled to God is through Jesus Christ. There's no other way. There's no other propitiation or sacrifice that can be made for their sins. Jesus says it. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And John says he did that. He became the propitiation so that we might live through him. He died for us. He died for our benefit, and He died for us so that we could live for Him. I mean, what greater love could be shown? What greater love could be demonstrated? How could anyone look at the sacrifice of Christ and not see the love of God? Beloved, you can never say to God, show me. You can never say that. He has shown you. Look at the cross. Do you not see there the love of God? Consider Jesus hanging on that tree in agony and pain. Consider that crown of thorns pressed down upon His brow. Consider the stakes driven into His hands and His feet. Consider the beating that He had already endured, ripping flesh from bones, so much so that He was virtually unrecognizable. Consider Beloved, how he suffered, and he did it all for love. He did it all for you. That's the ultimate demonstration of the love of God. And why did he do that? Look at verses 11 and 12. Beloved, if God so loved us, all those things we just talked about, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, though, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Because God has loved us so much, we need to understand that there are some requirements that we have as His children. 
God's love demands a response. God's desire for us is that His love be duplicated in us. Our text tells us that since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. This is how God's love is duplicated in us. As we love one another, our lives are showing everyone the very love of God. Jesus says to Richland Baptist Church, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Think about that. Beloved, the way lost people around us here in the Tri-Cities and beyond that will see God's love, the way they will see God's love is through us loving one another. We've got to grasp that though God has perfectly and completely demonstrated His love for the world through the death of Jesus Christ, that is historical, unassailable fact most people will not take the opportunity to examine the truth of that fact unless and until they see the consistent evidence of God's love being demonstrated in our lives in the local church. Nietzsche said, Show me that you were redeemed, and I will believe in your Redeemer. Beloved, the world, I believe the world is desperately searching for genuine evidence that there is a God who loves. And this is the point John's trying to make in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, can't see God, but if we love one another, God lives in us. In other words, they'll see us because His love will be made complete in us. I believe there are folks out there, despite what we see on the news or read on the Internet, I believe there are folks out there searching for answers. I believe they're searching a great many of them for love. They're looking for evidence that there really is a God who loves and cares them, and they may not be able to see God, but they certainly can see you, and they certainly can see me. Beloved, do you understand what's at stake? What is at stake is nothing less than the eternal Destiny of the souls of men and women who are desperately searching for love. And listen now, either seeing it or not seeing it by the way we love or do not love one another. I mean, do you get that? Do you care? So the rubber meets the road question is this. Are you demonstrating the love of God in your life through your words and actions to everyone? And I mean everyone. I suggest to you, beloved, there is nothing this church cannot accomplish for the glory of God if we will only love God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all of our strength and genuinely love one another as we love ourselves. And there's nothing that will hold us back more, nothing that will frustrate this body's kingdom work than failing to do so. I so want us to be obedient to our Father's command in this area. We've got to examine our hearts. Beloved, do you want to be a part of nurturing a loving atmosphere in this church, an atmosphere characterized by loving words and loving actions? Or are you going to 
choose to refrain from loving. Refuse to forgive. You want to bear that grudge. The reality is, it's a choice you're already making. It's a choice we all have to make. Will we choose to love as God commanded, or will we choose to be unloving? We talked earlier about the search for answers. Well, the answer to the success and growth of this church, numerically and spiritually, will be dictated more by how we love God and love one another than by anything else. How well we love as a church family is more important than all the programs and ministries of this church. How well we love as a church family is more important than the quality of the messages preached behind this pulpit or of the music that we hear on Sunday morning. How well we love as a church family is more important than the appearance of our buildings or the balance of our bank account. How well we love is more important than all that stuff. And I know for some of you, it seems like, you, Pastor, you don't understand. There's just so much to forgive. There's so much to forget, so much to lay down. I get that. For you to be able to love that person, we all know that person, right? To have so much invested in not loving that we don't see how we can begin to love again. We've got the added burden of our pride too you see we're simply unwilling to humble ourselves before God and man and, and admit that we've been more a part of the problem than we have a part of the solution but don't you see don't you see brethren what you're risking forfeiting there's so much joy there's so many blessings there's so much effective ministry so many lives we could touch if this church if we all would just lay down all that stuff Forget the hurts, forget the wounds, forgive and genuinely love our brothers and sisters as the Word, as our Lord commands us to. There's nothing more important this Christmas that we could do as a church and individual Christians than to love God and to love one another. Love really is the answer. Will we choose to love? Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for the powerful demonstration. Words are inadequate of your love for us and the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. Even as we celebrate his birth as that tiny, vulnerable baby, we look back through an empty tomb, stone rolled away, our Lord risen from the dead. And we look ahead, Father, to coming not as a meek and humble and weak infant, but as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, mighty and powerful, Fathers, we celebrate your Son on this day and on the morrow 
as we contemplate the gift of love that you have given us in him. As we match that up against the command that you've given us to love not just you, but one another. I pray, Father, that your spirit will move in us in such a powerful way that hearts would be changed, that minds would be changed, that relationships would be restored where they've been severed or damaged, that love would spread abroad in this church to such an extent, Lord God, that not only would our unity and our fellowship be sweeter and sweeter by the day, but that it would spill over out of our full cups, out of our doors, to the community, and beyond, Father. That though perhaps we can't literally see you today, Father, people would see in us something of you. Your love for them is evidenced by our love for one another. Father, we, that's our will. That's, Father, that's what we want to see happen here in our church. We confess, Father, that we've been impediments to that in the past, that we've held on to burdens and grudges, and we've, we've allowed wounds to fester, Lord God, and, and Father, we've withheld love when we should not have. I pray, Lord, that you would move in our hearts and that you would change that beginning in this very moment. Father, for those that are struggling with their relationship with you, Maybe they get along with fellow man, okay, Father, but they're struggling in their relationship with you. They've not been in the Word. They've not been praying. They've not been attending churches. They should. They're not a part of a church body, as your Word clearly reveals they should be. I pray, Lord, you'd speak to them today. And by the power of your Word and your Holy Spirit, you would draw them back to yourself and help them, if they've really backslidden, Father, to fall in love with you again, or if they've never received your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, that today, Father would be the day they accept that love gift of your son and his sacrifice on Calvary. In Jesus' name we pray.